0: In this episode of Her Story, Dr. Julie Gerberding, Executive Vice President and Chief Patient Officer at Merck, explores the intersection of women, leadership, and healthcare with Dr. Michelle McMurray Heath and Rachel King.
1: I spent that year taking science policy classes and getting a chance to pursue the other questions that were dawning on me, like who gets to decide what science is actually pursued? Who's involved in that decision making process? It has really been about following that curiosity and that discovery and finding out what are those intractable questions that eat away at you, and how can you use your career to help drive pursuing those questions.
0: That was Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, President and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, speaking about preparing for her career in scientific innovation.
2: When I was starting into biotech, that was eventually the first company that got approval to do gene transfer in humans in the United States. But it was also a startup company. There were times when I was there with my Harvard MBA personally ordering the lab supplies on the phone because that's how we did it then. And yet, what I learned was how to get a company off the ground, the nitty-gritty that has to happen. And eventually, I ran that company.
0: That was Rachel King, co-founder and CEO of Glycomimetics, sharing her experiences working at and leading a startup company. In this conversation, Rachel and Michelle reflect on their careers in biotechnology and scientific innovation from the lab bench to academia, government, venture capital, and chief executive, and the leadership lessons learned along the way. Let's listen. We feel
2: sometimes like we need to be more prepared sometimes than men feel. And I think it's important to have the confidence to step into that unknown or expanded role.
1: The more transparent you are about how being a woman helps you or impacts the way you lead, the more it will help the women coming behind you to see themselves in the leadership
0: around them. We're delighted to welcome Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath and Rachel King to Her Story.
3: Hello, and welcome to Her Story, where we're bringing together some absolutely amazing women to tell their leadership stories. I'm Dr. Julie Gerberding, the Chief Patient Officer at Merck, and a strong advocate of our two guests today, who I have known for several years and absolutely admire. So I'm so excited to have a chance to interview these incredible people. Let me start by introducing our guests. First, we have Rachel King who's the CEO of a biotechnology company called Glycomimetics and has an amazing story about how her journey led to this interesting and innovative role that she serves. And then I have Dr. Michelle McMurray Heath, who is the CEO of Bio, the bioinnovation organization that really is the trade association for a large number of biotechnology organizations, both in the human health area, but also in agriculture and animal science. We have women who've been in multiple sectors, who are strong advocates of biotechnology and innovation, but also have had some amazing transitions along the way. So Rachel, I'm going to go to you first and just tell us a little bit about your journey. You've gone to some pretty amazing universities, including Harvard, and you have a lot of background
2: behind you that led up to your current role as CEO. Tell us the short story. I will. Thank you, Julie. It's great to be here with both of you. It's really a privilege. I did go to Harvard Business School for my MBA and Dartmouth undergrad and felt lucky to get the education that both of those provided. Worked at Bain & Company in consulting first, and then got into biotechnology. And I've basically stayed somewhere around biotechnology in the years since, working at a startup gene therapy company, and then That company was eventually bought by Novartis and worked at Novartis for some time. I went into venture capital, worked at NEA, and out of NEA started Glycomimetics. And over that time, became very involved with bio also, and have also very much enjoyed that opportunity as well. Let me just probe a little bit. Why biotech? What was the attraction to get into this innovation space? I loved science. I was one of those nerdy people in high school. I had a microscope and a dissecting kit in my house and was always collecting things and looking at them and dissecting things. I always loved science, but I didn't go into it. And when I was in college, I got into other things. And when I was working at Bain, actually, was on a case team looking at one of the early biotech companies, and a light bulb went off when I realized that maybe there was a way to combine that interest in science with what was becoming more of an experience I was having in business. Realizing that made me appreciate the opportunity to potentially join those things and work in biotech. I'm very driven by the science and also by the potential that we have to have an impact on people's lives, which is so yeah. fundamental. Maybe you could just tell us briefly what you're working on at Glycomamedics? Sure, our lead program is in AML, which is a form of leukemia, and that's in phase three trial. So we're pushing that forward in a number of different clinical settings. We also have a program in sickle cell disease that we're trying to explore whether we can resurrect. Actually, it failed in a phase three trial, but we're looking back and analyzing, trying to understand what happened there. So hoping we may be able to do something in sickle cell disease. And we have some other earlier stage programs also in the hematology oncology space.
3: We'll come back to the sickle cell story, because I think sometimes we learn our best lessons in life from the things that don't go the way we hope. But let me turn now to Dr. Michelle, as she's affectionately known in the bio community. Michelle, you also have had an amazing career trajectory, starting with your academic background and moving in and out of various
1: roles throughout your career. Give us your short story. Thank you for having me. And I have to say I loved Rachel's story as well because I loved hearing the kismet of finding how your different passions can be pursued simultaneously. (laughs) I think that's really the journey and the path that we're all on as individuals and as leaders. I was raised in a public health household and I thought I would go into medicine. And when I went to Harvard, I was just preparing my pre-medical courses Mm -hmm. and I had a teacher's assistant who said, you guys should really work in a lab over the summer because you'll see completely different side of science. And I called 29 college professors at UC Berkeley, which was the campus near my house. And 28 of them said, thank you very much for calling. And the 29th said, why don't you come in and speak to me? And this is a real story of female sponsorship. She was a young assistant professor at Berkeley who had been a Harvard undergrad. And even though we looked nothing alike, she, took, she saw herself in me and just let me waste the time of her graduate students for that summer while they really showed me what scientific experiments at the bench were really like and I fell in love with the discovery process. And so while I've had many different roles, it has really been about following that curiosity and that discovery and finding out what are those intractable questions that wake you up at night or eat away at you, and how can you use your career to help drive pursuing those questions? So I worked in industry, I worked in government, and through that found my way to bio, but that's really been the common thread. So you're both CEOs and you're both in the industry
3: and you both are amazing people, but I'm sure the pathway to get to the top hasn't been a smooth sail at all times. So I'm going to probe a little bit in terms of some of the obstacles that you might have faced along the way and not so much the mistakes that you made, but how do you learn from your mistakes and how do you recover from them? So Michelle, I'll just continue with you and then I'll pop over to
1: Rachel next. The interesting thing about doing an MD-PhD program is you're confronted with two different ways to go about reaching a goal. In medical school, if you do everything you're told, if you turn in your assignments on time and you do your tests, you'll finish. In graduate school, there's absolutely no guarantee of success. And so you learn how to start having almost an investment portfolio of projects. You have some projects that are high risk, but high payoff, some that are likely to succeed, but only will be so-so in an impact. And you spread yourself across that range of risk. And then hopefully you have something at the end. And I kept that lesson and I've applied it in every role I've been in so that when you hit that project that can't work, either because of an intractable external force or because it's the wrong timing or because you just got it wrong and you were on the wrong track, have some other irons in the fire that you can pick up so that you can keep giving yourself that sense of accomplishment because that's really what keeps you going even when other things don't work out. What did you do your thesis on? I did my thesis on gene recombination in T cells. It's so funny because that's the way I found my way to policy to science policy Mm -hmm. is I was making transgenic mice, because we were studying Mm -hmm. how the chromatin structure and how histone acetylation and chromatin determined which part of the T cell recombined, but I had to breed transgenic mice. And back in the day, that meant a year of all these different back crosses. And I was studying it in immunocompromised mice. So they had these tiny little thymine and it took like (laughs) 60 to 70 mice for one experiment. (laughs) Controversial, right? Exactly. I had nightmares about those mice. But I had this extra time that year. And I spent that year, since I never liked to have grass growing in my feet, taking science policy classes and really getting a chance to pursue the other questions that were dawning on me. Like who pays for this science anyway? And who gets to decide what science is actually pursued? and who's involved in that decision-making process. And I'm still asking those questions today.
3: Rachel, I'll come to you. Similar trials and tribulations as you progress
2: to your leadership role today. One thing I would say about biotechnology, and I think this is true of life in general, is that things don't go according to plan. When you think about things like trying to finance a biotech company, you have to have a plan. You write your business plan, you lay it all out, you say what you're going to do and how you're going to spend the money that you hope someone will give you. And yet, it's pretty much guaranteed that things will not go according to that plan. And so you think a lot about things like who you want to have around the table with you to deal with what's going to happen and how you're going to address when they don't go according to plan. And so I think in biotech and in life, it's about being flexible and recognizing that you plan as well as you can. And then you deal with the uncertainties that you face and developing options. And so I think it's about developing a plan and retaining flexibility and really trying to ensure optionality. And that's been my experience. I mean, there's so many things that didn't go according to plan. It's probably too many to count, but I think it's been a story of trying to, work through the changes and come out as best you can at the other end.
1: I just have to say how much I love what Rachel just said because it's almost like the plan is that your plan will not work. (laughs) But that is really important because it level sets expectations and lets you deal with the ups and downs. And you both have had plan Bs, so that's good, right?
3: (laughs) If it's not plan A, it's plan B. I'll just ask you, if you're comfortable answering this question,
1: what's the worst mistake and how did you recover from it? I knew it was time to leave FDA when I was there. I'd been there for almost five years and I completed a cycle of success. I always like to, if I transition from a role, leave after you've had a cycle of success so that you know you're leaving because it's the right time to pursue a new area of interest rather than frustration Mm because you never wanna just leave in frustration. And so I was looking around, trying to determine what I wanted to do. And I took a wonderful consulting role in an organization that a dear friend leads, Fagri Baker's Daniel. I think you know Deborah Lappin too, mm-hmm. as well. She's still a wonderful mentor and Absolutely sponsor. Absolutely wonderful person. Such a wonderful person. And it was not a good fit for my skill set. It was a wonderful role. It was a wonderful organization, but it's not the best fit for my skill set. And I found myself sitting there going. I'm not quite sure how to build here. And coincidentally, J&J reached out to me around the same time for a role that did really fit my interest and my skill set. But I wish I had assessed that opportunity a little more carefully, rather than going in and everyone's investment of time and all of that. And luckily, to this day, I've been able to keep those friendships and, and that experience dear. But that was a lesson learned.
3: Building on that, if you were advising someone how they could be wiser about fit, how would you recommend they approach it?
1: It's such an important question because I think you spend so much time, particularly if you love what you do, you spend so much time trying to evaluate, okay, is this the right time to depart? Is this the right transition point? Is, have I learned what I can learn? And sometimes you're not paying enough attention to what you're going towards, But you really have to have that internal barometer, which is almost physiologic, that lets you know whether or not it sits right with your core, whether or not it really feels like this is comfortable on my skin. This is a coat I can wear every day and wear it with pride and feel incredibly comfortable and at ease. And if you don't have that sense of ease, if you have a little bit of apprehension, which is different from being intimidated by the Mm -hmm. opportunity, which can also happen. But if you just feel it's not quite me, then just pause and wait. You're not in any hurry.
3: Rachel, I'll ask you the same question, but also maybe just building from what Michelle just said, that there is that other factor, which is, am I good enough? Am I ready for this? Is this overreaching my potential?
2: Because I think that's a part of this as well. It's interesting, reflecting on some of the things that you were saying, Michelle, I was remembering when I was starting into biotech, one of my first jobs was working at genetic therapy. And I was thinking about actually a mistake that I almost made. I didn't do did this one. I didn't I didn't quite make. It was the early days of gene therapy. As it turned out, that was eventually the first company that got approval to do gene transfer in humans in the United States, which was a very interesting, exciting time. But it was also a startup company. And when I was interviewed for the job, the then CEO said, looking at me as kind of an enthusiastic, well-educated person who might have high expectations, he said, I just want to be clear, the roof might be leaking one day that might be your problem. And just trying to kind of bring me down and and let me see that there's gonna be a lot of nitty gritty there. And while the roof didn't leak, there were times when, for example, I was there with my Harvard MBA, personally ordering the lab supplies on the phone, because that's how we did it then. And these people right out of college were rushing over to me saying, I need these test tubes by Tuesday. Can you get them here by Tuesday? (laughs) Like that. And I personally organized the library back when people had physical libraries where people brought in all their journals and dumped them in a room and I put them in the year in order and all this stuff. Also there with my MBA feeling like I could be doing something more challenging than that. And feeling at sometimes really discouraged at moments when I felt like, why am I doing all this? Can't I be doing something? Something with more challenge and more brain power involved. And yet, what I learned was how to get a company off the ground, the nitty-gritty that has to happen. And eventually, I ran that company some years later after it was sold to Novartis as a division of Novartis. We took the company public. We had a lot of really great experiences there. But what's important and what made me reflect on that in your comments, Michelle, is I, I think it was fit with the people that maybe kept me going. There were really quality people involved. And what we were trying to do was an important, engaging thing. And that kept me going. And so that got me through the days of ordering the test tube and getting the library set up because I also got to sit in on meetings with the venture capitalists and hear about, what we were going to do with trying to get FDA to agree to the first gene transfer experiments, et cetera. So just reflecting on what kind of keeps you going. And I think those things are critically important, those elements of people and that personal engagement with something that is meaningful beyond yourself.
3: When you're in the lab, I certainly went through a painful transition of being a doer to being a manager and then a leader, but there is a big difference between being the scientist at the bench. And then managing people and then ultimately becoming a CEO where you're leading a strategy and a broader organization, we're not often prepared for those transitions. This isn't naturally something that we're born knowing. It's a skill set and a process of maturation, so I am wondering how each of you made that transition from the science focus to the leadership umbrella.
2: I was never science focused in the sense that Michelle was with the MD-PhD. I don't have that educational background or like you, because I never went to graduate school in the sciences. Yet for everyone, man or woman, you get to a point where you... Or hopefully, if you're lucky, you, you get a chance to do more something that may be beyond what you thought your capacity was, if you're lucky. And I do think what I've I've heard from a lot of women is that we feel sometimes like we need to be more prepared sometimes than men feel. And so I do think it's important to have the confidence to step a bit into that unknown or expanded role. And I think there's an internal confidence that hopefully one brings, if lucky enough, to have those opportunities. But yes, you do hopefully at many stages in your career get to a point of discomfort, right, which is also a point of learning. I certainly have felt that all along the way.
3: I haven't told you this, Rachel, but I actually attended a bio meeting in your region and there was a woman there from your company and I said, oh, well, you must know Rachel King and she adores you. Amazing things to say about your leadership and the spirit and culture that you've created within your company. So whatever your hesitations were, I think they should be long gone because (laughs) you've obviously been incredibly successful. So Michelle, you made that transition and are probably
1: still making it because you're you're (laughs) a brand new CEO role now. It's interesting. I was reflecting as you were speaking, I did the nitty gritty at the lab bench, and then I did the nitty gritty in policy, you know, running in the halls of Congress, trying to draft legislation in the middle of the night, just elbow to elbow with folks that are just learning about policy and legislation as well. But you get to a point where you start having a sense of mastery. At what's right in front of you, whether it's at the lab bench or with policy or probably with business decisions. And then you start seeing a more complex landscape around you and you start envisioning, well, you know, if we move this chess piece over here, we'd have the ability to do this and this and this. And you suddenly realize that to get to your destination, it's gonna take a team. And that's really the step at which you should hold your head up high and look for those leadership opportunities. And start small. you know that first team that you manage of two or three or four people, that is a major shoe to step into because that's an entirely new way of working. realizing how you work through other people, keep other people motivated, cheer them up when they're down, manage not just what's their day job but also how they're personal life impacts that, take your time with that transition, because I think that is an incredibly important step. The
3: three of us are part of bio, which, as I said earlier, is the trade association for the biotechnology industry. And there are CEOs from all walks of life and people who are doing some of the most amazing entrepreneurial work that is going on anywhere in the world. So if the world is going to be saved, it's probably going to be saved by someone who sits around the leadership table there. But when I first joined BIO, when Rachel was the president of the organization at that time, there weren't a lot of women around the table. So I'm going to ask Rachel, what was it like to be the leader when you were almost an N of one?
2: One thing I would say is that in most of my life, that's been my experience. So it wasn't so unusual at BIO. I mean, that was even starting back when I went to college, when I applied to Dartmouth, I did not realize that it had recently gone co-ed. confess that when someone said to me in the interview process how do you feel about going to a school that's been all male until recently i was a little taken aback so there and then when i was in business school really most of my career i've been in situations where there have been more men than women and so i guess i've gotten used to it so i don't think bio was different so much for me i did have a very strong even domineering, I would say, father in my life who prepared me, made me comfortable dealing with strong men. He had gone to West Point and worked on Wall Street. So I have had a comfort in the men's world through those different experiences. And I think the people in bio, the the, mostly men at that time, and some women are and were just really wonderful, engaging intelligent, forward-thinking people and just a real pleasure to be part of that group. So I think that made it feel like a reasonable thing to be to be doing. I know you had an incredibly
3: successful tenure and you were certainly a role model to me for how to conduct myself in that kind of environment. Now Michelle, you are also an N of one in your leadership role of the entire organization. And I know you're in the early days of the transition, but you certainly hit the ground running. In addition to the important work that BIO is leading in the context of the pandemic and the important policy work that still has to continue on Capitol Hill, you've launched a new initiative at BIO that really directly speaks to health equity, but also diversity and inclusion. Can you just say a few words about that and why you chose that as your own signature strategy going into
1: this new role? It's so funny. I almost feel like it chose me because I started at Bio five months ago and my second week on the job, we had our big annual convention and it was the week of George Floyd's memorial service. And so it was really kind of the focus of the country. And it really made me stop and think, what can our contribution be to trying to make the world a more equitable place? And that framing has really touched on all of my senses of our policy that we do as well, not just d policy, but also our innovation policy. How can we look at it with an equity lens? So bioequality just has three pillars. One is to try to do everything we can as an industry to end health disparities. And I think specifically that means stepping up on improving diversity in our clinical trial populations. Pillar two is really around improving visibility to the great pipeline of talent that is out there. Many of our companies sponsor great training programs for women and minority scientists and entrepreneurs. I, for one, am a grateful beneficiary of a Merck Fellowship when I was in graduate school. So giving visibility to all of our bio member companies of that great talent pool is something we're going to be doing. And then pillar three is focusing on how can we use the power of our supply chains to help patronize women-owned and minority-owned businesses. So it's really about economic development, the talent pipeline, and healthcare disparities. And I think that's where we can really have an impact.
3: We don't have a lot of time left, but I just can't end this conversation without asking you each about how you would advise the next generation, where you see women who are interested in biotechnology careers, who aspire to leadership positions. How do you support their interest and what advice do you give them in terms of how to accelerate their own opportunities for success? And I will start with you, Rachel.
2: I think perhaps the most important thing in a career experience is who are the people that you're working with? As you think about what is a good opportunity, I think the opportunity is substantially driven by the people. Obviously, science is important. you got to choose a good organization, but who are the specific people that you're going to have an opportunity to work with, who you're going to be able to get to know? Because over time, those are the people whose lives may cross again with yours, whose careers may cross again with yours. And so to the extent you can find a network of people that you both admire and I would say enjoy, I think that's critical. And to the extent that you can find something, and this industry actually provides a lot of that, but something that connects yourself to something larger than yourself something yeah. that's that's mm-hmm. broadly meaningful to you i think that those two things are really probably the most critical
1: michelle yeah. what do you say that last point is so powerful because you have to be working for something that just drives you and that you're passionate about and also just to be courageous because when you're intimidated by a situation don't hide don't withdraw take a moment, really take it in, see where you can get support and help, and then move forward. Because I guarantee you 10 years down the road, when you're looking back, you'll be why in the world was I intimidated by that. (laughs) So it will seem so much smaller in retrospect. So just keep that long term vision in mind, and bring your whole self to work. Because the more transparent you are about how being a woman helps you or impacts the way you lead and how you do your job, the more it will help the women coming behind you to see themselves in the leadership around them. And that's critically important.
3: You've no doubt both had mentors. If you're advising someone to find a mentor, what's the most important thing they should look for?
1: We think about mentorship in such a transactional way sometimes. And I think it's really a lot about finding people who remind you of yourself or who you aspire to be in some sort of way. And then not just approaching them for the 30 minute coffee where you ask them about their lives, but really finding out how you can volunteer to help them on something. Because you will not get paid to do the job you want to do today. (laughs) You have to earn the skill set to really be valuable enough to take that on. And often the way to earn that experience to volunteer for it and learn from them as much as you can. Brilliant.
2: Rachel, can you add
1: anything to that?
2: I think you're right. Sometimes we think of this as being too transactional. I would encourage people not to think of it as transactional, but to think of it rather as, um, you know, a desire to develop relationships with people over time.
3: So we're at our time, but I have one last question. I bet you can guess what it is. The title of this conversation is Her Story, So I'd like to know, if you decided to write
1: your story, what would you title the book? I think I'd have to say Walking Boldly and Making Waves. (laughs) Making Waves. All right.
2: Mine would have to be something to do with gratitude, something about a grateful heart. I feel very thankful for the opportunities that I've had for the people I've been able to meet like you both. And so I think mine would have something to do with gratitude.
3: Well, there you have it, two really incredible women who have had all kinds of professional development experiences and are CEOs of really important organizations and just lovely people. I always say that leadership is a privilege, and it's certainly been my privilege to have a chance to have this conversation with you. So thank you and good luck. I wish you both every
1: success.
0: Thank you, too. Thank you so much for having us. Her Story is a weekly podcast produced by Think Medium. Please subscribe to Her Story on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. You can access the video version of Her Story on YouTube or on our website, thinkmedium.com backslash Her Story. Be sure to rate and review Her Story so we can continue bringing you stories from inspiring women healthcare leaders. We've found that podcasts are known through word of mouth, and we appreciate your spreading the word to friends family, colleagues, and mentors. For question and suggestion about her story, contact us at herstory@thinkmedium.com. at Thanks for listening.